Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Welcome back. Today is another episode where we talk about someone who's turned out in life, quote unquote. Turning out means, well, they've made it. They are living their lives, often in relationships, running businesses, living lives, moving forward and finding happiness. Isn't that what we all want? So today I am with Adrian. Hello, Adrian. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for being here. Um, just so that our listeners know who you are, Adrian is a amazing, uh, I call it get shit done kind of guy. You can fix probably anything and build anything. Uh, you also run your own business. You're an entrepreneur. You uh, pretty much have a background that most people would be jealous of, the things you've done. So we'll get into that. But uh, appreciate you being here. And we're going to talk about ADD and childhood and parenting and trauma and Adderall and all the good things. And I hope that our listeners get value uh, from this episode and all our turned uh, turned out series, which is to really showcase that, you know, things can happen in life that potentially are traumatic and, and uh, they're like hurdles, but with courage and uh, in your case with doing the inner work, we can overcome those and we can create a life that we love. So... Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. take us back. Um, when's the first time that you felt something was quote unquote wrong with you or someone said you might have a disorder or you're, uh, you know, you're not developing right or you started questioning yourself? Um, you know, really goes back probably like all kids to like early trauma. You know, I, I had a, uh, uh, parents who had a really nasty divorce, you know, when I was like five years old and, uh, you know, it was, uh, just a really intense experience. You know, my, uh, my dad was really controlling. He's kind of very, uh, like a narcissistic kind of guy and he was not, you know, a good father. Like, honestly, he, he didn't pay attention to his kids in the right ways. And he was very like, concerned with himself for the most part and he wasn't able to take care of his family so my my mom divorced him when I was five and I'm one of four so I was the youngest and uh that was really hard for me you know they you know they did all the wrong things you know they used the kids to carry toxic messages to each other they uh you know, created a hostile environment, you know, to grow up in, you know, where you end up questioning your reality and wondering, you know, your place in the family and, you know, why everything is broken, you know, and, and that develops into, you know, some really intense behaviors for a kid, you know, that age. So, you know, all of my siblings like acted out, you know, from it. You know, my sister ran away. My brother moved to Switzerland when he was a teenager. He was doing a lot of hallucinogens when he was like 13, 14, you know, and I was 
I was pretty young, so I had like a window of time that was pretty all right. But by the time I was like eight or nine, um, you know, we'd been going back and forth, a lot of custody battles, things like that. And I started just, you know, shutting down emotionally, like um, really rebelling in every way, you know, mm-hmm. to the point where I actually even was setting fires and, you know, like just being a vandal, like I think mainly just because I was angry and frustrated with everything. It's interesting, uh, you know, of course, I've done so many of these and we've done so much research. Everything you're saying for me is always like, yep, yep, that would make sense, right? That would make sense. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of our experts, Gabor Mate, pointed out that a lot of kids when they're going through a divorce, because the parents badmouth each other, and because the child intrinsically feels like he or she is, is made of both of them, they start to question them themselves and it sort of almost splits their personality. And so a lot of mental disorders start that way. Yeah. Even bipolar or schizophrenia, like depression, anxiety. So again, you know, I didn't want to interrupt there, but it, it just it makes sense, right? That you guys would go through through that emotionally and, and psychologically, that it would be a really I hate to say fucking hard childhood. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. But that's not easy to handle as an adult. I, I can't even pick, imagine as a child. Yeah. Yeah. And, and children really aren't respected very much, you know, in our society. And they're not taken seriously. They're taken for granted in a lot of ways, you know, because in, in some ways they don't have all of their capacity for full process, you know, and like in a heady way but intrinsically they're very grounded and very connected and so they absorb things on a much deeper level yeah and that should be taken seriously you know and and my mom was great she really did everything she could but she was also basically a single mother of four you know my dad could barely take care of himself for the most part you know Uh, i don't know if you're familiar with like a narcissistic personality but it's like constant financial desperation, constantly dragging people into your toxic loop, uh, you know, a lot of gaslighting, a lot of shifting of blame, even on kids, you know, which um, is just really hard to deal with until you grow up to the point where you can understand it, you know, yeah. and, and then isolate it and remove yourself from it. But that's a long road to get to that point from being five to being 20. You know what I mean? And have yeah. and, and all the experiences along that that path. And so you were going back and forth between mom and dad in terms of households? Absolutely. Like sometimes not even a full year in one home because you know, I would I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know I didn't really understand my reality. And so I would go back and forth quite a bit. And how was it uh com- com- were you comparing yourself to your siblings because you were the youngest? Were they sometimes doing okay, but you, you didn't feel okay? So you were feeling like you're the only one that's having trouble? Or was it clear that everyone was just a mess? Um, well, you know, one gift that uh, I was given as a young child, like in my early years, was that uh, the judge decided that me and my sister could not be separated. My, my next sister up, she were separated by five years. Mm-hmm. So she's five years older. And uh, so we were together for the most part growing up. And that was like a really solid 
connection that was like a lifeline but for the most part you know any kid going through that kind of intense trauma with you know a broken home and a lot of back and forth and never really being grounded um you feel totally alone you know in schools and and peer groups um you generally don't feel like you know you're as good as the other kids like for some reason they seem to have normal lives and your life is all fucked up yeah you know and so my friends were all the fucked up kids naturally you were attracting them or you were drawn to them yeah well however it works yeah right and and so take us and whenever if i jump over anything feel free to just go back and fill it in um when did you when did you officially when were you singled out or you know pointed to for having a a disability or a disorder or problems at school when did your mom decide i'm assuming it was your mom that said we need to we need to check them out something's up well you know i have a pretty dramatic um turning point i think because um i was so frustrated uh with my life and um so lost as a human being that i started like like i started setting fires like i set a post office on fire with a trash can and like what age when i was nine Mm. yeah and i i broke into a museum at one point and sprayed the paintings with a fire extinguisher you know and like wow i set a, a a school on fire that wasn't like in session but i was like you know same thing just being a vandal you know and i don't really remember why i was doing that but i remember that i was a really angry kid Mm. you know and do you feel that well let me see how i ask that how what what were you referred to or how were you referred to by your mom or or family friends or parents was it just that oh he's just angry or was there more of a uh, already a labeling like oh he's crazy or he's or what were the labels if if that's the right term well, my mom always accepted me for who I was, and that was probably what kept me somewhat together. Mm. Um, but my dad wasn't really paying attention, and I think that's probably why I was doing those things. To get his attention. Something. You know, I just needed some drastic change, and I felt trapped, you know. But So when you, when you did those things, right? I mean, I grew up in Switzerland. I couldn't even imagine having done anything like that. <laughs> I, I think I once... Uh, uh, mounted some, you know, chewing gum underneath the church pew, and I felt <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to hell, you know. But anyway, it's a different th- story. But um, you know, you doing these things, what was the feedback coming home? Was it like police coming to the house and like, like you were in trouble, kind of thing? Or oh, I was arrested. Yeah. I oh was, wow. Uh, yeah, the um, they were looking for me. You know, they knew it was they at nine years was, old. At nine years old. Yeah, yeah. and then. Um, actually was a citizen's arrest when I started the fire at the post office. And I was like walking away and somebody chased me down and like held me there and called the police and then they arrested me. And, um, but I was a really tough kid. I was hard to reach, you know, I'd been through a lot already, even as like a young person. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember they tried to interrogate me and like sat me down in like this room for hours and had like police come in and just like try to break me and, I, uh, I didn't give him anything, you know, but my friend who was with me was also kind of another kid on the outskirts, but he, 
he hadn't been through what I'd been through at that point, and he, you know, kind of gave everything up. We, I, I ended up going to court, and I remember that I was, they were going to send me to juvenile detention, you know, at nine, which is pretty unusual. Um, but my grandma intervened. She was, she wrote letters to the, to the gov, uh, the judge, no, no, to the, to the governor, I think. Oh, wow. Like every day for like a month and just like it tried to intervene and it worked. And he basically said, you know, you have to leave Tennessee. I was living in Tennessee and, um, you know, you can't come back and you have to have, um, psychological treatment, Mm -hmm. you know, so I had to start seeing a shrink. So this is a nine. So your your mom, right? Not mm-hmm. your dad. Your mom took you to the shrink. So yeah. So I was living with my dad in Tennessee when that happened, and then I had to move back to Georgia with my mom, who was living in Atlanta. And then I started seeing a psychiatrist there. Mm. And um, how was that experience as a nine year old? To what goes through your head when you walk in the doors every week, or I guess. I mean, I would just toy with them. I didn't, you know, I, I had, I was not invested. I, I, I thought it was like, I realized they could never reach me and they could never understand me. I felt like, and so you mean the psychiatrist? Yeah. Yeah. So I never really opened up too much. I just Mm -hmm. gave them a little bit of what they wanted. And then, you know, after that, (laughs) I was like outsmarted. (laughs) I just didn't, I didn't participate. Yeah. Yeah. And you said earlier when we were talking before the recording uh, something about that your um, you felt like your parents like shipped you off, right? It's like we're not going to listen to, we don't have time, we we can't do it. So here, go talk to this guy or girl. I don't know who it was, but or woman. Well, my mom worked two jobs, you know, day job and a night job, you know, and um, if she had had more time, she would have been there for me. I know that. Mm-hmm. But living with her was hard because, um, you know, it's it's not easy to be a single mother with four kids, you know, right. and right. Um, even though mostly she was just responsible for me and Susanna and Natasha. And uh, well, I mean, for the most part, she's the one that got us through our hard times, you know, mm. and that required a lot of sacrifice. And, uh, you know, she just wasn't able to give us the kind of attention that we needed, you know, and it's not that she didn't want to be there for us. It's just that she couldn't, she couldn't. Yeah. So we see that a lot nowadays. Um, you know, families, single mothers with children and ADHD, right? They're trying so hard and it's, it is hard because there's a lot of friction because there's no father figure. There's no male certainty in the household. So the, the, the woman, the mother has to play both roles. Mm -hmm. That's so exhausting, Mm -hmm. you know, so I can't imagine, like you said, there's sacrifices, right? Mm -hmm. But um, so let's go from there. So you went to a psychiatrist. Was there already a diagnosis of something of what was quote unquote wrong with you? Or was it just see a shrink and we'll figure it out? Or how did that go down? Yeah, I mean, you know, psychiatrists are they have to they have to label you as something, you know, so I was labeled as um, attention deficit um, what was it? It wasn't ADHD. It was impulsive disorder. Mm. So attention deficit, but that I was also impulsive. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, that that was a disorder. 
Did you right. also get OD, oppositional defiance disorder? Or was it maybe not back then? I don't know. Um, I don't know if that was so much of a thing back then. Yeah. I think, uh, you know. You were just a little punk. They couldn't yeah. pay attention. It was <laughs> impulsive. Yeah, yeah. I get it. They were like, this guy. <laughs> this guy. Sit still. Pay attention. Don't set shit on fire. <laughs> yeah, go to and school. And then you can go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, how's, how were your parents? <laughs> Did that ever come up? Did the psychiatrist ever really focus deeply on the family, on the, the divorce, the parents? Or if you remember, wh what were you guys talking about? Yeah, I mean, they did, you know. But, I mean, the truth is, is that, like, psychiatrists can't really offer anything because they can't offer substantial change, you know. And, um, you know, the reality is, is that, like, you are you're bound to your family and that you're in it until you can get out. And sometimes you want to get out when you're very young and you don't have that option. So as much as a psychiatrist might want to listen to you, you know, they can't actually do anything for you because they can't change your parents and they can't change your situation and they can't really give you anything um, other than, you know, some understanding and maybe some drugs. Yeah. And is that what happened that they put you on drugs? Yeah, for sure. What what was the first one? Um, I think it was I think it was Adderall. Maybe they did start with Ritalin, but then I think it, they went to Adderall. Maybe because you're nine. Yeah, sometimes they start early on with Ritalin and later mm -hmm. other Adderall and other things. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So how did any memory of how that felt right off the bat, like when you were on? now on a stimulant drug oh it was immediately a red flag for me really yeah How come? i mean um i was just a really smart kid like i just you know i remember like taking adderall i remember taking ritalin and um you know i wasn't one of those kids that got calm from it you know i was like felt like i was on meth basically and hmm. i remember being like wow everybody just is insane i remember like thinking like you know, everybody's crazy. Like when the, you were on it? No, no. Altogether. I remember like I was blown away that they had prescribed it to me, mm. like even as a young person. And I recognized its danger right away. So you were already thinking like, you guys don't know what you're doing. Oh yeah. You shouldn't have given me that. Yeah. Right off the bat. Mm. I remember like I would squirrel it away, you know, and I would save it. And it, I had tons of it. I had like, Tons of Adderall. I'd always fill my prescriptions and save them. Oh, so you would take it for a while at the beginning, but then you were like, that's it. I'm going to just save them. Yeah, I stopped taking it pretty quick. Wow. And then I just like started selling them to my friends and <laughs> like, yeah, I mean. At what age? Like literally around there? I was nine, probably 10? like, no, I was probably like 12, 13, 14. So you had taken it for a couple of years before that to, to. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were like what's happening no mm. way i'm gonna just save them and sell them mm -hmm. yeah and i i was i you know i was kicked out of like two middle schools and then i remember when i finally got to high school and it was kind of a joke you know my mom was a public school teacher so she got me into her mm. middle school and high school and she couldn't even save me from getting <laughs> kicked out <laughs> wow but uh i i mean i went to you know four different high schools i think and then my brother did live in Switzerland, and I went to live with him when I was 16. Or what, what city? What area? I'm just curious since I'm from Switzerland. Oh, near Basel. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, the north. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Arlesheim was the little town. What's it called? Arlesheim. Arlesheim. Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. So, so he he went to. Uh, sorry about that. He went to live there. Like he literally just left and picked up his things and moved there. Yeah, he was. He he left when he was a teenager. Um, he had discovered Rudolf Steiner. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he um, moved to study Rudolf Steiner at the Goethe Anum. And uh, he mar- married this Austrian woman who had a, a young girl. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, he'd been there for a few years and he was teaching at a Waldorf school in Arlesheim. And I was, I was constantly in trouble with the law like from the time I was like very young. Yeah. yeah. And I was, um, you know, kind of, you know, incredibly defiant, obviously. Like <laughs> that's why I mentioned ODD. I'm like, man, you barely missed that one. Cause nowadays yeah. you would get slapped. That would come right after ADHD. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, finally, you know, I remember talking to him on the phone and being like, God, I just can't do it anymore. Like I have to get out of here, you know, and I can't leave because I can't emancipate myself. I was like 15, I think. Mm. And, um, he was like, come stay with me. I'll get you in the school that I'm teaching at. And, and, you know, it was an amazing experience. You know, I, I, uh, I moved there and I already spoke German cause I had lived in Germany with my mom. Um, she had gotten a Fulbright scholarship, um, to Schwarzwald. Oh, wow. And um, so I was able to somewhat keep up in school in German. Um, but I just remember, like, it changed everything for me because I, like, saw a different way to live. I saw a different kind of, uh, you know, world that I wanted to be a part of. And um, Was that a turning point that would have you, I don't want to say maybe go within, but at least, like, pivot and realize, right, like you said, there's a whole new universe you want to be part of versus this other. How would you describe the one that you wanted to leave? The U.S. educational system, psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to lead the witness, but how, do you, how would you compare the two worlds? What was the main difference? I mean, uh, I don't, if you're familiar with Waldorf schools, um, they're mm-hmm. just incredibly, you know, free you know they protect human autonomy and and they they celebrate you know the human as a free spirit um when i lived in america i was always a free spirit but i had always felt trapped by my environment and um as gifted as i was i never found anything for for me at uh at schools you know i'd always gone to public schools and it felt like an indoctrination camp, you know, and I was like fascinated with, you know, all the dystopian novels and the, you know, I was very like drawn to, you know, like the dark side of, of society, you know, as, because it's what I saw for the most part, because I'd always been ostracized and I'd always been on the outskirts. Uh, but when I moved to Switzerland, I saw people living free and kids living free, you know, like, kids my age who had freedom and could Mm. ride the trains and travel the city and, you know, like choose what they wanted to read and what they wanted to learn and be respected as an individual. And, um, I was really drawn to that. And I went through like some really intense processing when I first got there 
And I still had a lot of rebelliousness in me, but my brother was patient. Hmm. But you know what happened is I flew home for Christmas and my dad took, uh, walked with me and he said, are you smoking weed in Germany <laughs> or in Switzerland? And I said, yeah, like it's not even illegal there. Like it's not a big deal. Like, and he's like, can you promise me that you won't smoke weed if, if you go back? And I said, no, like, I'm not going to promise you that. That's stupid. Like, even if I promised you, I'd be lying because, you know, I don't really even have that much self-control right now. I'm like, yeah. I'm like barely hanging together. And he, he literally called my airline and canceled my flight to no. go back and trap me in the States. Wow. And, um, and you stayed at his place. I, I did live with him. Um, because I, for some reason I wasn't able to live in, I hated Atlanta anyway. And I'd been really like getting in trouble there. Um, and I remember he, I was like, I felt so trapped wow. and I just completely lost it. Like I like stole his cars just to wreck them. And like, I just was like, I was done. I was so done. And I was like, basically you have to let me be free. You have to let me leave and live on my own. Mm -hmm. So and you were how old then? I must have been 16 because that was right yeah. before my surgery. And mm -hmm. then that's when I like had that traumatic operation. I had a traumatic uh, spinal fusion right after that. It was like just one day my sister was looking at my back and she's like, God, your back's curved. And I was like, oh, really? Like, that's weird. And then uh, we got, I went to go get an x-ray and it was like a severe scoliosis. Um, and uh, they did a, a really intensive um, spinal fusion where they removed one of my ribs and they put a titanium rod in my back hmm. and um, they fused my spine on one side. And then I was, um, I was in ICU. I was really uh, just clinging to, to life and then a lot of pain. And um, they realized that I had a tumor in, in my back that had caused hmm. the scoliosis. So they did an emergency surgery on the other side. So, yeah, I was recovering from that. Actually, you know what? That must have been, that was actually, I'm trying to get my timeline right. I'm wondering if, yeah, you came back to the States and then that happened here, not that, in Europe. That happened here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think it might have actually happened right before I went to Europe. I might have actually... Um, had just started recovering from that and started walking in. Cause I remember being really physically weak in Europe. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that that was so that, so I must've been 16, 17 and then I came back at 17 and then you got trapped and then I got trapped and then I, I went out on my own. I moved back to Atlanta, stayed with my sister. My mom was not there at the time in the house and, I started selling drugs. I, uh, I was arrested like quite a bit. And at one point I was, I was arrested enough that my family stopped bailing me out, you know? And, um, I was looking at, you know, jail time and, um, Georgia had taken my driver's license. I was on probation and my probation officer was collecting, you know, way more money than I could even afford I was working at a fast food restaurant and like taking a bus into the city to work at a, at a great steak and potato or whatever wow. and I remember like at that point my brother had moved back to the states 
and he was living in North Carolina. And this was when I started like wanting to live again. Um, you know, I had been really suicidal up to that point. And then, um, you know, one day I just realized like that I wanted to live and I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to change. I'm going to do it better. And again, I, my brother was my savior. He, he was living in like this little loft apartment, like one bedroom with his, with his wife and his daughter. And, uh, he took me in, I slept on his kitchen floor Wow. and I told my probation officer, I said, you know, you might as well just put me in jail because I can't do this. You know, I can't make these payments this way, you know, like, and if you don't give them their money, they put you in jail. I said, the only way that I can pay you guys, like I owed them like thousands and thousands of dollars for the damages or no, it was just, that's how they, that's how they do it. They just, you know, every time you go to court, they give you fines and fees mm -hmm. and lawyers. And, you know, it was I was thousands of dollars in debt to, to, to Georgia and wow. I didn't have a driver's license. And I didn't have any skills, really. You know, I knew a little bit about carpentry. My dad had started a cabinet shop and taught me a few things. But when I moved to North Carolina to stay with my brother, I think I was I was like 18, 19. And uh, I just changed everything. I, I stopped breaking the law altogether. I stopped selling drugs. I stopped driving without a license. I got a bicycle and I was like riding my bike like 14 miles to work at a cabinet shop, like a commercial cabinet shop. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to build cabinets uh, like well, you know, like the right way. Now, I wanted to ask you about, you said you had been suicidal before that, right? And we'll go back to the turning point, but mm -hmm. you were on stimulant, right? Drugs, mm -hmm. suppressants, um, and then pain medication after the surgery, right? So mm -hmm. maybe tell me about that period where you were literally on a cocktail probably of mm -hmm. certain drugs and did that make you feel suicidal or when did you first realize like, I don't wanna live or did you have any attempts or what was mm -hmm. that whole period like? Well, I don't really remember a time where I wasn't doing a lot of drugs. Like, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, we talked a little bit about Adderall being a gateway drug. But from the time I was a young teenager, I was always doing like drugs, Xanax, Adderall, like, you know, I would snort it, you know, like just to get high. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't medicine. It was amphetamines, you know, and that's how we treated it. Um, and, uh, you know, we would we would take hydrocodone, Xanax, like Adderall, Oxycontin at some point. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, weed hallucinogens you know like we would buy like pounds of morning glory seeds and crush them up and turn them into tea we get high on fucking robitussin you know what i mean like yeah. <laughs> anything yeah. you know glue yeah it was glue. it was insane you wow know? and do you like you know a lot of parents are told and we were the same thing we were told that if uh, children that are diagnosed with adhd who are not medicated right the unmedicated ones would self-medicate so kind of like saying the gateway is if you don't get any treatment you'll probably end up using drugs oh but what i'm hearing is the true. opposite no yeah <laughs> you know kids that have what they need don't do drugs and giving kid drugs doesn't give them what they need you know what i mean well that's said, that's yeah. not what a human needs 
People need love and attention and understanding. And um, they need space. They need space to be who they are. And, and until we can meet our, our children on that level, you know, we're going to continually lose people in the prime of their life to, uh, you know, the dark side of the world. You know, we're, we're mm -hmm. going to push them away because, you know, a society that brings people into the circle and cares for them, no matter what, you know, and that's how I live today. That's how I've learned to live with my community, you know, and that's why I'm successful because I look at the people around me and I think, what do they need to be they're the best version of themselves? What can I provide to give them that? What kind of patience? What kind of, you know, facilities? What kind of opportunities? And then that comes back around into like a wholesome environment that you get to live in and share. But and, and so this obviously this is after your turning point, right? You, you had done a lot of work. We'll mm -hmm. get into that. But so the turning point for you was that you realized you didn't want to break the law anymore. You didn't you want basically you wanted to live. Right. And this is at like 18 ish, somewhere around there, your brother's back. Now, how hard was it to pull yourself up, you know, from the, the bootstraps? Because you were you were in pretty deep, right? I mean, you had nothing, you oh, had yeah. debt, you still, were you still taking any kind of drugs? Or at that point, you were off of Adderall, right? You were not considering yourself anymore as ADHD, or was that still part of your makeup, of your internal conversation that you had uh, a disorder? Or where was that at in your head? The disorder at that point was not, it was deeper, you know, like when you get to that point in your life, if there, there are people out there who've been there and who know what I'm talking about, but your, your problems at that point are, are deep insecurities with yourself. Mm. And, um, and you have to come come a long way to get back to, you know, allowing yourself to be loved, coming back into the fold, feeling like somebody who's worthy, you know. And those, I, I had stopped doing drugs for the most part. I mean, the way that I was doing drugs. Right. The escape or the, the pain, right. quote unquote, killer, right? Yeah. Yeah, the... The, uh, oh, I hate myself. Let me just, you know, get, get hammered and, and drown it out. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, I remember like feeling like a fake, you know, I, I had while you were on drugs for no, during that time? No, when I was recovering. Oh, I remember like I moved to the, the place in North Carolina was, you know, this amazing area like Durham, Chapel Hill, Raleigh triangle is what it's called. It's called the triangle. And it's a beautiful place. There's amazing people there. There's more PhDs per capita than I think anywhere on the East Coast. You know, there's like huge research centers and, you know, Ivy League universities, University of the South, North Carolina State, uh, Duke University is right there. They're all like just within driving distance of each other. Um, there's, you know, it's a really fertile ground. It's the Piedmont in North Carolina. And I fell in love with it right away. And I, I, I transformed completely, you know, I, I, I did my, I had 200 hours of community service to do, and <laughs> I think probably $20,000 to pay off to the state of Georgia. And, and I was, 
in great shape. I was, uh, you know, I had, I had come a long way physically and I'd learned how to discipline my body and I had no, uh, I had this very, very high pain tolerance, which led me into the types of work I was doing, you know, like tower climbing and, um, you know, construction work. And I could, I could push myself to extremes, uh, mm. discomforts and be fine. And I remember that a lot of my friends were UNC students, you know, cause I was kind of of that age. And I remember that I had learned how to be like, act like a normal kid, you know, young adult, <laughs> normal. <laughs> yeah. I like that term. And I had like an amazing community and lots of friends. And I, I married this beautiful like woman who was a like girl actually. Um, and I had come so far, but I just felt like a fake. I felt like I was, you know, playing the part, but that I was actually still broken, you know, and, and I never really felt like a part of it, you know? Mm. And, uh, that's because for years you have been told not just by other people, but by yourself, your inner voice, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm broken. I'm not good enough. Yeah. I'm nothing. All that stuff. Yeah. And so, and that actually led to me getting divorced, you know, like the, uh, so I, so I got married at 24. So I had this, this amazing five year stretch from 19 to 24, where I had done so much healing and I had, you know, completely recovered. I developed all these, uh, construction skills and, um, I had really like learned how to take care of myself and I was really like just hustling like i never paid rent i always like squatted houses or i like one time i built a dome on somebody's property in exchange for being able to live there or you know i i found this super old 1800s house that i like split with five people and paid 200 a month in rent you know yeah i was just crafty you know and um i made it out of that and i, I was i was on my feet again and um, that was 2008, and the construction market completely collapsed. And uh, I was just about to get married to um, this, this amazing woman who was, you know, had like just a perfect life, you know, like the life that I always wanted, but I didn't feel like it deserved. Yeah. You know, like UNC student, like traveled abroad, like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. just this, like, Oh, like my life is so good. And I was like, Oh, me too. Like, yeah, let's be together. Yeah. And, uh, she was driving a Volkswagen, you know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. She was, yeah. Like a brand new, your parents bought her a brand new car for graduation present, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. Wholesome is the word, right? Wholesome. Like, just like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was a ballerina, like, wow. Like, and uh, an environmental science major and a dancer. We met dancing. I used to dance a lot. And uh, you really transformed there in five years. Yeah, I did. Damn. I was good but, for you. But but I was still like I was still had a lot of demons, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we got married, I was in deep debt, you know, um, from. You know, when you are coming up from the bottom, you know, you, you max out credit cards and you do what you have to do to get through, yeah. you know, to put tires on your truck or whatever you have to do. And um, I was really proud because I just hadn't had never really been given much. And I just mm. had to make it all for myself. And I wanted to 
be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And her parents tried to give us like $20,000 as a wedding present. And I wouldn't take it, you know, I just said no. And that was like kind of the beginning of the end because when the construction market collapsed, I didn't know what to do for money. So I borrowed money from my grandma to go to dive school in Florida. Hmm. And I went to the commercial diving academy and I was separated from my wife, my newlywed wife. And uh, she was still in UNC. She was in her senior year. And um, she was about to graduate. And I went through this intensive dive program. It was five months, like 40 hours a week. Uh, we lived on site, you know, PT every day, like, you know, swimming in the Florida estuary, deep dive training, and then they cut us loose. And the life of a commercial diver is a very rugged one. And so my first job was in, um, in uh, this little island just outside of Jacksonville, Florida replacing the piers under a paper mill with this insane like cowboy diver who would just like basically like <laughs> send us out on a john boat with your own gear and no support and just like toss your tools in and dive in after them like you know what i mean and like yeah. freezing cold water through the winter like no heat nothing just wetsuit you know and uh, uh, uh. it was awful like i almost died <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> and it, but i stuck with it i was so fucking hard-headed and I, after that, I got a job in Louisiana and I took my beautiful wife and her perfect life and I, I took her to fucking Lafayette, Louisiana um, to take some dive job that put me on a, on a boat for two months at a time. Mm. And, um, you know, that's just what I knew how to do, you know, and I just knew how to sell my body. You know, like rugged work for for high pay. Mm -hmm. That's all I knew how to do. And, uh, you know, it was it was extremely destructive to our relationship. And as happy as we were together when I was gone for big chunks of 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 the year, you know, living on boats. Must have been hard for her. Yeah. Yeah. She she hated it. Yeah. She hated Louisiana. You know, Louisiana is very like backwoods compared to North Carolina and. She eventually like decided to go back to North Carolina and I was just I was just too hard, you know. I remember like just being really a hardened soul and I, I was pretty merciless and just like just really edgy, you know. And I and think you, you couldn't help it. It was just how you were op operating at that time. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And she was really like very soft and had not had similar experiences. And I think that came out in our marriage. And at one point she got pregnant. And she told me she was pregnant and I was offshore and I was so happy. Mm. And I had planned, you know, I'd been working offshore a lot. And I had planned this big event on the Outer Banks with all our friends. Big party, rent a beach house. And, um, you know, I was just super happy. And I remember that I was living on a barge at the time. And I got to, you know, they have a satellite phone. You get a few minutes on the phone, you know, in the evening. And she was usually crying, like, to me, like, wanting me to be home. And and I was just, you know, living in a bunk bed with 12 other guys in a, like, tunnel on a boat, basically, you know. And it was just, like, I didn't have anything for her. I mean, my life was, like, 12-hour shifts, 12 hours on, 12 hours off, seven days a week, you know. Yeah. And... 
she um, told me she had a miscarriage, like while I was still working offshore. And I just like melted down and basically like told him I wanted to go home and that I, you know, was kind of done right. with that life. And um, we, we did go to the Outer Banks and all our friends were there. We had this big beach house. It was a party and it was really uh, an amazing experience, but I was pretty heartbroken. And um, then she told me one night uh, at the at the beach house, you know, we were in a, my truck together. And we were just visiting and being like, you know, really close. And she told me that she had actually had an abortion and that she told me that she had a miscarriage because she was scared to have the baby. Wow. And she was afraid to have a husband who was not going to be there to be a father. And um, I just shut down and I got really cold and I just told her, I'm like, well, I want a divorce and I don't want to see you anymore. And, mm. and she was like crying and wailing and, and I was just completely turned off. I was completely like just cold. I was just ice. And, uh, like I just left. I just bought a one way flight to Mexico and I just like traveled around in Mexico for a while. And I just didn't, you know, I just completely shut down mm. and I, I just left all my gear and my tools and everything on the boat and I never went back and I just like shut down and, uh, you know, it was, it was awful. And I, I went through a really dark period after that. And, um, I started selling drugs again. I, I built out a grow house in North Carolina after moving like Mexico, Chattanooga, North Carolina, like I was aimless, you know, I just was kind of like lost yeah. and suicidal again. Um, kind of like, it kind of like reaffirmed all the things that I had believed about myself in the back of my head, you know, that, that you were still broken and still can't live a happy life. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. Unworthy. Unworthy. Yep. And, uh, I ended up back in North Carolina, still very reckless, very suicidal, back to my old kind of mentality. And um, I started, you know, I had all the skills of a contractor. So I built out this grow house with a partner and we were distributing like weight, you know, a lot of like weed. And uh, it, it, at that time it was still very illegal <laughs> to do yeah, that. Right. And in the South. And, uh, he, he was a super volatile person. So I ended up buying him out of the business. And at the time I was a contractor and I was doing some commercial work. And, um, I had a friend who was an investor, a Jewish investor, and he had property and he was offered me another house to expand the cannabis business that I had going. And I tripled my, my output to the point where I was, you know, like I, I dropped like just thousands of dollars on this place, put in commercial, you know, air conditioning units and wired directly into, you know, a whole nother 200 amp panel and like racks of ballast and a 16,000 watt room that I had built out, like, you know, in the living room and just decked it out. And my first harvest was like 38 pounds or something. And it was overwhelming. Like it was a hundred and, 
was over a hundred thousand dollars like in cash and it put me in like touch with some like pretty shady people mm. you know because like to distribute that kind of weight yeah. like you know you're dealing with a lot of cash and you're dealing with a lot of really paranoid people so at that point i'd been growing for two years and i was finally starting to recover a bit but i was busted you know one of my <clears throat> one of my main distributors uh, old partners who lived like in the midwest got busted and it was a domino effect mm. so you know i i remember we were trimming like you know dozens of pounds of weed like you know it took eight guys to trim that much weed like 20 hours and it was harvest time and i knew that i was going to go down soon because i knew that everybody was falling and they were all ratting on each other so but i was trying to get this harvest in because i'd already burned one harvest and this was my t my golden ticket it was going to be like you know 150,000 plus wow and uh you know so i was like fuck it i don't really care um take my shot you know and while we were trimming this, this cop pulls up, you know, in the driveway. I live way down this one, you know, one way drive. And you know, I like peek through the window and my dog's barking. And I'm like, all right, everybody, like gigs up. Cops this are here. It. Oh, no. Everybody go outside, get on the ground, put your hands on your head. Please don't do anything stupid. You know, let's make this peaceful. And I went outside and I met the cop and I said, hey, man, like you got us like, you know, my friends are about to come outside and get on the ground and put their hands on their head. And he was like, oh, OK. And then I'm like, I'm going to do the same thing. Please don't kill my dog. You know, like, let me get my dog. I got my dog and tied her up. And the DEA showed up. The FBI showed up. And uh, I was really polite. You know, I said, you know, here are my keys to the car. Here's my safe. Here's the combo. You know, this is my lab where I was making like, you know, BHO and stuff like that. And uh, the, the DA agent had already been to my other location oh, and wow. he saw that I was like very professional and he was like, oh, like I saw your other spot. It's the nicest grow up I've ever seen. Like he's like, you know, I see that, you know, you know, you're trying to cooperate. He's like, so I'm not going to arrest you, but you need to go find a lawyer. Mm. And. Uh, I you know, went talk to a lawyer, but it was like 50 G's in cash. I didn't have it. Jeez. And they were trying to prosecute my girlfriend for being a complicit. And then they were trying to charge me with conspiracy trafficking charges. And I was looking at like 25 years in prison. So I had an unregistered Airstream and I just like, you know, swapped out the VIN tag on my truck and I registered my Airstream with, under my friend's name and I just took off for like three years and went on the run and uh, just used a burner phone and went by a different name for a little while. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I guess all that to say is that, you know, there's, there's a train of events that happens, you know, when you, when you kind of put it in a kid's head that they're not good enough and they can't be a part of the world as they see it. Right. The functioning society, the normal, proud yeah then you're a, like you, you you kept saying a couple times the outskirts right you're out there you're not in there exactly yeah and yeah. it's a similar experience for somebody who's transvestite or whatever you know you just 
you don't feel like you can participate and so you find other ways to live and quite often it's very depressing mm. you know so and what you know again you know for me it's clear right like you just said when when we you know blame the child for being the problem although they're dealing with the emotional you know breakdowns that the parents are causing then eventually when you get on drugs and you feel you can't be yourself and you get depressed and suicidal and all that stuff it's almost like there's no one there to help you i mean who's going to do it yeah. like i mean you had your brother which my is amazing brother. yeah right <laughs> he saved my life many times yeah it yeah. sounds like that was a turning point when he moved back and you know and but really what what is a child to do at at 17 underage right you can't like you said you can't move out maybe at times you're stuck you you were uh you felt uh, caged in by your dad and you know to me that those are like ticking time bombs yeah and they're out there right now in probably thousands of households there's probably a child right now feeling the way you did mm -hmm. at nine or ten or 18 you know i mean it blows my mind how we're not acknowledging that all this early childhood trauma actually causes most of the mental disorders absolutely and and there is there are studies i mean the ace study of the 90s with kaiser permanente and the cdc they proved that kids who have been exposed or had multiple traumas two or more in their childhood were more likely to get these disorders or go to jail or be drug you know get divorced all these things are all connected but we just kind of go like nah that kid's just angry that kid's just depressed that kid just has adhd blows my mind i mean your yeah. story again shows me all these events where you go you would never do that if you had an emotion emotionally healthy upbringing I mean, you may try a few things like I did if you, you know, what we called sneaky things, but that's it. Yeah. You get in trouble and you go, oh, that's stupid. So, yeah, I don't know what else to say other than you, when I say you turned out is because you went through all this to realize I don't really want to do that anymore. I need to, or I want to live a normal life, right? So after this run, how did you, the, there was another turning point. There was another turning point, and uh, you know, because um, you're running for three years, you're on the road. You must definitely feel like a fraud, or like broken, or like outskirts, outlaw. You know. Oh, it was. Oh, it was so intense. It was very intense because, uh, you know, I think when I got busted, I I had been recovering as well. You know, I had a, a healthy relationship. I had, and I wanted out of the business. You know. I, I knew that it was a dead end. Like I knew that eventually I yeah. was going to get popped. Like, you know, um, where did you go? Just U S yeah, I just, you know, actually it's funny. I ended up at a hostel in South Georgia <laughs> and Florida. I spent a lot of time in South Georgia and Florida. And, um, I, uh, I was doing a lot of healing, you know, um, cause I lost everything at once. I lost, uh, like a healthy connection to the family that I cared about being close to. And I was building my relationships again with my, my family, my grandma, my brothers, uh, my brother and my sisters. And I had 
good friends again in North Carolina, even though, you know, when you are a drug dealer, you basically are living on the outskirts permanently because you have to lie to people all the time. Right. And I was still in that. I was still in the darkness, you know, because of um, being not really being able to live a normal life still, you know. But I was I was really facing myself at that point. Mm-hmm. I was starting to look deep and, and, and turn inward and, and say, all right, well, what's going on? Why do I keep having these 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 patterns of self-destructive behavior? Mm hmm. And I had one more pattern of self-destructive behavior to, to live out. Um, bring it, bring it. <laughs> so <laughs> We're just layering them all up. Yeah, yeah. Listen up, parents, because if you're going to medicate your kids, this might happen to you. And <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a hard road, you know. It's when, when you have such deep misunderstandings of yourself and, and you don't see yourself as this being of divine light, which you are, you know. Yeah. You know, you have to find your way back to that. And, and that can take lifetimes. That's why they call it remembering. Yes, You're exactly. becoming a member again <laughs> of the soul light, you know. Yeah. Got to remember, yeah. And, and, and drugs absolutely remove you from your soul body. And they, they totally disconnect you from your ability to connect with yourself. And, and that's what makes a normal human being. Not, not normal, but a healthy human being. So, so I was doing a lot of healing and I met, I met a woman who at the hostel and we started dating and it was an unhealthy relationship. And I knew that, but in my heart, again, I just still thought there was something wrong with me. I I was like, God, I keep falling apart. This woman seems to have a lot of her shit together. Again, I'm drawn to that. Um, but she was, she was a narcissist for sure. (laughs) And um, she was a lot like my dad and we, you know, we lived that out and we started dating. We started traveling together. We did a cross country bicycle trip together, which was seemed like a good idea since I was pretty much living that way anyway. And then we ended up in Kansas city from Virginia beach. We were like a couple thousand miles on bicycles and it was, the whole relationship was pretty dysfunctional though. And we, we, uh, we moved from Kansas City. We wanted to make it to Ojai because she was from Thatcher. Mm. So here we are. Hmm. And uh, wow. so we, we like, we're going to ride our bicycles out there. But by the time we got to Kansas City, it was like October. And we were like, all right, well, are we going to brave Colorado in November on bicycles? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so we, pitched, we, we pitched in to buy like an old beat up truck. And we drove it back down to my dad's house where my Airstream was parked. And living at my dad's house was awful because wow. he's crazy. And she saw that and she thought that I was like that. And she was like, God, you're going to be like your dad. Like, anyway. So we, we, got, we got out of there just in time before everybody was melting down. <laughs> and we moved to Chattanooga and we're staying in an alley in my Airstream together. And I started to, again, live a normal life in Chattanooga. She got her own place. Um, our relationship was still very dysfunctional, and um, I wanted a way out. So I, I, I did split up with her at that time. And we'd been in Chattanooga for about a year, and I got busted, finally. They finally caught up with me. 
a national federal warrant. And so they had been looking for you yeah, for three years. Yeah. But I'd started using my name again and my ID and I was getting comfortable mm. and mm. I got just a traffic stop. Right. Ooh. But I, I didn't think that I had a warrant because I was using my ID and I had like had a minor fender bender and the cop ran my ID and he didn't arrest me. So I thought, oh, well, maybe they're not looking for me anymore. Yep. Well, they were. So they got me. They extradited me to North Carolina. And this woman, Melanie, was was there for me through that ordeal. I got a lawyer. I did do some jail time. Um, they at that point, the, the feds had given up the conspiracy case and they'd, they'd uh, just kicked the whole case. They'd already arrested everybody else involved and prosecuted them. So I was like the, the, the last one standing. Yeah. And so when the, the state got the case, they really, you know, it was old. They didn't really have all their evidence together and kind of blew over. And at that point, I also found out that Melanie was pregnant. Mm. So, you know, I was really wanting to transform my life again. I was really wanting to grow and be better. And I really wanted to be a father. So I decided to get back together with Melanie and we both decided to try to make it work and move to Ojai and try to have a normal life here. And we did. And uh, thank God my probation officer was very understanding and you know, we made it out here and I, you know, ended up having a, a fallout with Melanie here. She, she was just extremely abusive and she was, just, you know, just a narcissist, you know, just gaslighting me, you know, regularly, constantly making me feel really like a terrible person and like I was broken and needed fixing just like my dad did. And I think I had been drawn to that, but I think I finally reached a point where I was like, you know what? I'm not, you know, I finally got to a point where I was like, you know, I'm not broken. I'm happy with who I am. And I don't want to be with somebody who makes me feel that way. That's great. Yep. And when I, when I ended the relationship, she completely turned on me and she took my son back to Georgia and you know, you know, some of that story. Yeah. But it's really honestly the best thing I ever did. I've been separated from my son for a while. Um, but to be out of that toxic relationship has been amazing. And I've finally gotten to a point in my life where I feel totally whole, you know, and I feel confident and I'm happy. And I met another woman with two kids and we got married and I've never been in a healthier relationship in my life. <laughs> like we're totally there for each other. We, hardly ever have conflict and we've been through like intense struggles, but it's always felt light. And I'm a father to her two kids and it couldn't be happier, you know, and I'm fighting for, you know, to be in my son's life, Max's life again. And, uh, there's nothing that can hold me back from that because I'm totally, you know, once you fix yourself, then the world opens up to you. Mm -hmm. Once you do that inner work, then everything falls into place. And my experience this last, these past few years has been just incredible serendipity, uh, just 
forces of nature coming together to give everyone in my life and me especially like what we need. Yeah. And, and what I see is like a healthy interaction with my peers and uh, like a, an amazing community and I couldn't be happier. So that's beautiful. It was a long road. Yeah. <laughs> it was a Definitely. Long road. <laughs> wow. Well, so what, what's amazing is that what I get is that like what you said, when you fix or heal yourself, you're kind of cleaning the dirt off your magnet because you're a magnet for manifesting what your soul wants, what you want in life, right? You want to create it. And when that magnet is cleaned up or healed, it attracts whatever you need, right? Absolutely. And I, I feel like when we give kids medication or we sort of treat them like broken or abnormal, disordered, from an early age, we put blinders on that magnet. It's kind of like, well, you're supposed to attract only that. I want you to get good grades. I want you to get a good job, blah, 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 right? And then these kids grow up and their lives are messes. They're doing drugs, they're confused, they're insecure, they're divorced. I mean, I've seen it over and over and over. And I think your story is a beautiful example of how when you, you know, you mill through all that yuck and then eventually you, you're committed to cleaning up and eventually, I mean, you're not that old, you're still young. You're now starting to attract or live the life that you love. And yeah, it took a, a lot of shit to go through. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's all meant to be right on a spiritual level, but um, some of that probably could have been avoided by, yeah, <laughs> I would imagine <laughs> by a present father present man in the household and somebody responsible for having impregnated a woman and actually sticking around at least emotionally they don't have to stay married you can have a peaceful divorce right but being there for the children would have probably had you guys turn out differently you know yeah speaking to parents is is really the only way to heal our children yeah i mean totally you know you have to put in the effort you know you have to and you have to respect your kids as, as human beings. Like, you know, we've lost the, the sacred, you know? Yeah. Because if you truly see your child as a sacred being, then you would never taint that or never label that as chemically deficient or as abnormal or as, you know, needing fixing. Or doomed for life. Yeah. No. It's, it's not fair, you know, because... You know, we, we need more respect for each other. And, and when we have to really, like, protect our children from, from you know, if, if you in your own home are going to do something insidious to your child, then, then that child is going to have a long, hard road yeah. coming back from that. Yep. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to create an inner environment that that will be very difficult to recover from. And, uh, and, and the modern medical system is, is a part of that, that toxicity. And, and it's a part of making people believe that they are broken and needing fixing. Yeah. It creates that dependency that mm -hmm. without my pill, I can't be normal without being normal. I can't fit in. And if I don't fit in, then why live? Mm -hmm. And that's it. Starting it nowadays, some kids are medicated at three years old. I mean, it just breaks my heart. It does. It breaks my heart. And too. this is not a trust me. I'm never. I'm not anti meds. There are times for meds, 
but that's like the I would say the emergency, you know, 5% of the time you need to survive hospital, you need to get meds, boom, right? But the, the way, the amount of drugs that go out to these little kids is like insane. Mm-hmm. And it's not like they're dying. It's not an emergency. Right. They're just maybe not getting good grades right now. Or they're not, you know, uh, behaving in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. So give them some space. Let them grow up. Let them go into their teens, you know, or... Or even you can do it earlier, but at three years old, I mean, it's just... Just give them love nuts. and attention. Try that. Don't give up on them. You well, know? that's hard. <laughs> it is. It is complicated and it's, it's difficult, but it's... <laughs> love and attention now available from Pfizer. <laughs> yeah. And Moderna's working on love and attention. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, it's mind-blowing. Well, I appreciate you um, so vulnerably sharing your story and really giving us the nuances and the details because it's all important, right? Because from the outside, you could just say, yeah, I was a troubled kid, but I'm fine now. But the whole journey to me, again, clearly shows how it can go any dark way if we don't, if we're not present with our kids, if we don't give them the love and attention they need. Mm, you know, I always right. say it's not attention deficit. It's attention dilemma because they're not, the kids are not getting the attention they need. So they're calling out, they're acting out to get attention. Right. And so we go, oh, they can't pay attention. Right. Well, why would I pay something to you if you're not giving anything to me? Okay. Not a fair deal, you know, so. And paying attention means, it means, you know, maybe addressing everything in that kid's life, addressing their diet, addressing their education, addressing the people that they're around, questioning public schools, questioning medication, you know, because... You know, it's it's not enough to turn to the professionals and turn it over to them. You are their parents and you spend time with them every day. And it's up to you to pay attention to their experience and listen to them and listen to what they need and what they're telling you they need. Yep, yep. You know, and, and not listening to the schools and not listening to the therapist and you know these professionals who the experts yeah may or may not have have their best interests you know maybe they do but maybe they but they're not there every day right you know and and they don't have that that connection that you have and you're the only one who can really who can really like truly and are in a place to figure out what they really need and it's going to take what i say Tatiana and I always talk about it. it's going to take one thing. The first step is you got to shift your perspective. If the child is the problem, that's not the right perspective. Exactly. Because then everything else goes south. But once we say the child's not the problem, what could be, now we have an exploration, like you said, diet, environment, school. And that's what happened to us. We started shifting every single one of those things and we're still working on it. It's a lifelong process. But... Mm-hmm more love is present, more peace, more joy, less friction, right? Right. What everyone wants, but most people aren't willing to do the work because they got to stay busy in their jobs and create money so they can climb up the ladder, get more money and be quote unquote successful. Meanwhile, the kids are suffering and they're on medication. You know, the parents never see them. Yeah. And they, they, how are they supposed to know what they need? They never, I mean, that, that's what happened to me. I mean, I remember begging my dad to go to a private school, you know, I mean, I was so bored at school. I hated school. Like, I didn't fit in. I, I, I needed something more. Mm. And, you know, I remember, like, 
he told me he was going to send me to the school, this private school that my uncle taught at, and I wanted it so badly, and then he just didn't do it. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's things like that, you know, like where, you know, just because it might not be important to you doesn't mean it's not important to them. Right. And, you know, your career is important, but maybe their middle school is fucking important too. <laughs> you know what I mean? And maybe yeah. you need to shift your life to make sure that they're getting what they need. And that may mean like spending a lot of money on a private school. It may mean moving to another state to, yeah. to find a place that's better suited to them. Yeah. It may be staying somewhere because they have a good life where they're at. And even if your career might take you to another place, you know, and, yep. and making the sacrifices, you know, we, I, I, I do see a lot of parents putting themselves first and, um, and you're right. It, and then they blame the kids for like acting out and it's like, well, what, what are you doing in the scenario? You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> What's your contribution? Why are they acting out? Yeah. You know, they're acting out because they can't put it into words. Yeah. So they're, just acting out and later becomes a habit. Like you said, you set fire, you steal stuff, you do drugs. It's just a way to get attention or to stop the pain or distract from what? From lack of love and attention. Well, I think we've come full circle. Um, I appreciate, again, you telling the story and I'm so happy for you having turned out, <laughs> right? Because that's what all parents want. Parents are worried, is my kid going to turn out? Now that they have ADHD, are they going to turn out? Well, I think we've now given plenty examples, in, not just on this podcast, but in our film, there'll be many examples, right, as well, of, yeah, people can turn out. It's going to be a rough road if we sabotage their childhood, but, you know, you can turn out. It's okay. It's never too late. So I think for any parent listening, you know, there is a way. And I think if we start today by not making the child the problem, realizing what do they actually need? What are they crying out for? Right. It's a cry for help. We call it a check engine light of the family. Mm. Something's up. Don't just put a piece of tape over the check engine light. <laughs> yeah. That's not going to fix it. Right. So, um, yeah, thanks for your time and I wish you all the best in the new venture. I know you guys are moving and uh, or have moved, starting a new chapter. You got the three kids and, uh, you know, there's going to be challenges like always, but now you're, you seem grounded and rooted and, and you're ready to take on the next chapter. So congratulations. Thank you. I, I think that I think that having been through all this, I feel like a very good parent and I, I see me and Belle both making a lot of sacrifices for our kids and all I can say is that when you do go through all of this it changes the way you see being a parent too mm -hmm. and I think that there's a lot of hope for you know the next generation of um, you know the children of the parents who are able to break the cycle who are able to break the wheel yep. and um, and give them something different you know, and so that's that's what we're encouraging. And we're also here to give each other strength and say, you know, we can work together to get rid of toxic masculinity. We can work together to get rid of these biases that we have uh, against each other, yeah. you know, and we can work together to live in better harmony. And and I really appreciate you doing this podcast because it's contributing to that. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. And yeah, until next time, let the mir miracles roll. Uh, thank you for listening. 
uh, there'll be another exciting episode, perhaps not as adventurous as this one, but this was beautiful. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.